0: it's friday april 30th i'm stephen fee and this is the pen pod a podcast from pen america on today's edition publishing under pressure our ceo suzanne nassel weighs in on the latest controversy surrounding the publishing world and how publishers should react to public and internal pressure. Then Teens for Press Freedom, the next generation is picking up the baton. How a new organization is advocating for a free, fair, and open press. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on the PenPod. This week, it's our 50th episode of Tough Questions with our very own CEO, Suzanne Nossel. And here for the 50th time, Suzanne joins me to wade through the tricky questions about free speech from the past week. Happy 50th episode and welcome, Suzanne.
1: Thank you. That's a lot of tough questions we've gone through.
0: It is. It is. It is. Uh, So maybe I'll throw a few more today and we'll see if we can finally stump you. So the big news this week in the publishing world, uh, that publisher W.W. Norton decided not to publish Blake Bailey's biography of Philip Roth that came after allegations of sexual violence emerged uh, against the author and a subsequent outcry. Why shouldn't Norton be penalizing Bailey?
1: Well, that's not exactly right, because they'd already published the book. The book was out. It was released early in April. And what they decided was essentially to halt it, that they would and take it out of print uh, and no further print runs. They're disavowing the book. They're returning the rights to the author, Blake Bailey. He can now make a deal possibly with another publishing house. And, you know, it comes in the wake of these very serious allegations of rape uh, and and sexual harassment and assault uh, levied against Bailey. Allegations that it should be said, you know, have not been proven or adjudicated or even investigated. Uh, although, you know, in the media accounts of the allegations, there's some reason to believe, you know, bad things happen, whether it's exactly as alleged uh, or not. And Norton is in a complicated position because they were approached by one of the women, uh, a a publishing professional, who alerted them to her allegations some time ago, asked it to be kept confidential. Her message seemingly was passed along to Bailey, who reached out to her directly, sort of uh, imploring her to go silent on this. And so... You know their position was kind of quite compromised, not having dealt appropriately with the information that came their way. And you know, I think they they sort of froze up, and their conclusion was initially to pause the book and shortly thereafter to wash their hands of it entirely. And look, I can certainly understand the impulse, you know, with allegations like these having been raised that it becomes difficult to support a work and an author who is under that kind of cloud. And it is true that a publisher, you know, in the course of doing their work is, you know, a champion of sorts for a book. And and that's why the role is complicated, you know. But what they're saying uh, as a publisher should be that, There's something worthwhile here. I mean, in this case, it's a a seminal biography of Philip Roth that Bailey had worked on for more than 10 years. I can remember when I first came to Penn, we honored Philip Roth that year uh, in 2013. And it was well-known at the time that Blake Bailey was working on this uh, tome. And so it's, you know, an important book, you know, whether you like it or not, there've been some very positive reviews, some very negative reviews. From a Penn America perspective, I'd say the most important thing is that the book not disappear, that the ideas in it, the, you know, historical relevance of it, the insights it offers into a, a distinguished literary career not vanish from view. That would be a real loss, I think, for readers, for historians, uh, you know, and, and sort of stewards of the literary culture. You know, and then you face the question of all right, if an author has become highly problematic, and yet you want to ensure that the book stays available, you know how do you do this? And you know it could be that there is a, a reasonable outcome here where the book gets picked up by another house and sort of lives to see another day. Uh, you know, regardless of what happens to Bailey, although any other house will be in the position of also not wanting to enrich Bailey. Uh, you know particularly if the allegations against him are substantiated. And I would say in Norton's handling of it sort of peremptorily before investigation, uh, just pulling themselves out of th- away from this book entirely is troubling. It just uh, raises the concern that uh, the book could disappear. Uh, I don't know how many copies are in circulation, how easy it is to get a copy right now how long it might be before, uh, you know, new copies are made available, uh, if it is to sell out. And so, you know, as as guardians of free expression and and believers in the importance of the availability of the widest variety of books, you know, I I see our role as really kind of championing, uh, you know, in this case, just uh, the idea that the book needs to uh, live to see another day and, and be available to people who might seek it out.
0: So on the flip side of all this, um, Simon & Schuster is deciding to stick to its decision, at least as of our conversation right now, um, for their book deal with former Vice President Mike Pence. Considering the damage Pence and Trump did to the country that we have documented and discussed on this podcast and the track record of lies sown by the prior administration, why should a major publisher give Pence a platform?
1: Look, you know, at Penn, we don't really take a position on whether they should or they shouldn't. In this case, they made a decision that they would. And they announced that Pence was doing a book uh, with Simon & Schuster. And so then the question became, well, given that there are objections from some, I think, roughly 14 percent of Simon & Schuster's staff having signed a petition protesting the decision to publish Pence, some members of the public joining in that petition, you know, should Simon and Schuster reverse course? And you know, I really think the answer is no. I think we look at editors and publishing houses as stewards of our literary culture. We want them, in my view, to continue to publish an ideologically diverse array of books. Uh, you know, we could be embarking on a path whereby sort of mainstream houses are applying a kind of political litmus test of acceptability to, you know, a certain segment of the population, you know, their own staffs, you know, here in New York City, a certain age range, a certain uh, background, educational level, uh, you know, do we want those voices to... Dictate what a house will and won't publish. Look, editors are not perfect either. One issue we've taken on here at Pen America is the lack of diversity in publishing, both uh, at the level of those who run publishing houses, those who acquire and edit books and publicize them, uh, and and down the ranks, as well as among authors. And so. Look, I do think it's extremely important to accelerate progress on that front. We have seen some acceleration of progress. To, you know, the appointment of Dana Kennedy to a top role at Simon and Schuster just a few months ago, and you know, her intimate involvement in the acquisition of this book, I think, is you know worth noting. Um, but I I believe that you know, it, and we have publishing houses and editors because we value editorial. Judgment. There's a reason that uh, a bookstore, you know, doesn't look like your Facebook feed, and that's because people are giving a lot of thought to what is put out. And I think with a Mike Pence, yeah, he could go to a conservative imprint, but then he wouldn't have the voice of uh, an editor, perhaps pushing back on some of what he's saying, asking questions that we as readers might want to know. And I can understand the judgment call that a Simon Schuster editor would have made that the Pence book was something worth pursuing. You know, I am curious about, frankly, how Mike Pence justifies all of this in mind, you know, what he made of being the focal point on of the insurrection on January 6th, and having, you know, the President of the United States, who, you know, whose who's deputy he'd been for four years, you know, is practically calling for his head. I mean, I'd like to know how he... Uh, makes makes sense of this in his own mind, and I, you know, I think that will have some value for our politics, uh, political science, history. So I can understand that judgment call, and I, I think Simon Schuster is is right to
0: stick to its guns. I just a quick follow up on that. I mean, there's the issue of Pence and 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 his book, but then there's also this question of what effect this has. I mean, when you know that, say, fourteen or fifteen percent of all your colleagues, you know, might Write a petition that says the book you picked as an editor, maybe not from Mike Pence, but from someone else who's controversial, um, shouldn't be published. I mean, what's the internal dynamic there of the the potential for a chilling effect?
1: It's absolutely there. And it's, you know, it pervades throughout society. You know, we face some similar issues with authors who are controversial and the question of, you know, should we invite them to take part in a panel discussion or an event and how might people react? How would Penn staff react? How would can members react? And, you know, there's a tension because you want to be accountable to your constituencies and give people voice and, you know, not simply make these decisions by fiat. And, you know, at the same time, if uh, every dissenting voice uh, has such sway, you know, the array of books you could publish or authors you could present would really narrow very drastically. And it would be, uh, you know, all through sort of a single... Uh, political or ideological lens. And I think our discourse would become a lot less interesting. So I think there is it is important for those who are in those cur- curating roles to, you know, have their own perspective and opinion, uh, to be willing to stand by it, to have the support of those uh, in, in leadership roles who will have their back when they come under criticism, and to you know be willing to engage the criticism and engage in dialogue. You know, not just dismiss. This is a woke mob, but actually, uh, you know, talk about why it is that this decision has been made and and why uh, there's a belief that it's the right decision.
0: Now, well, Suzanne Nossel is CEO of PEN America. She's also author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks, Suzanne, for 50 tough questions conversations.
1: Thanks. Bring on 51.
0: This past year, we at PEN America have been holding what we've called a Free Speech Advocacy Institute, a virtual program for high school and college-age students to learn the ins and outs of free expression advocacy from our experts. Uh, We were heartened to see that a group of our alumni have actually started their own organization, Teens for Press Freedom, and its two founders, Charlotte Hampton and Isabel Tribe, join me now. Hey, you two.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure, thanks for doing it. So, um, you know, Isabel, I wanna start with you. Um, How did all this come together?
3: Yeah, so Teens for Press Freedom really emerged out of the Pan America Free Speech Summer Institute. I think Charlotte and I really learned a lot about free expression and about how press freedom was under threat in the United States. I think that's something a lot of people take for granted, but in the past four years, we really have seen this erosion of trust in media um, in America. And we saw that there was really room for teens to get involved um, and and advocate for journalists. And while we were attending this institute, we were also witnessing the unprecedented attacks on journalists at Black Lives Matter protests um, across the country. And I think that made a lot of people feel really vulnerable because when you see the press being attacked like that, it makes you wonder, you know, what what don't they want us to know? Um, And I think, you know, we really felt that this was very urgent and that, you know, defending journalists was something that we really had to do right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I completely agree. Um, and Charlotte, I'm wondering, you know, what is it about, you think about young people uh, that they need to get involved in advocating for press freedom? You know, what is it, you know, there's a lot of press freedom organizations out there. Like why, why Teens for Press Freedom? Why this age group?
2: Right. Yeah. So this was a big question I asked myself as we were founding TPF, because I didn't I really didn't want us to be just like a copycat of the Committee to Protect Journalists, except worse. Right. So, um, yeah, I was really thinking about what our angle here is as young people. And it really has to do with our relationship to media. Right. Our generation has this obsession with social media, which means that, you know, we're relying on anonymous accounts that frequently post disinformation or accounts of news sources that totally lack nuance, as opposed to reading full articles, right? So at the time when all of our political views are forming, we are creating these really absolutist views that we hold on to incredibly strongly just because of our relationship to social media. So there is this really specific angle as to why teenagers have to get involved in this. And also, you know, it's it's very topical with the last administration's fake news rhetoric, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's why it's really important for us as young people to be involved with this.
0: Yeah, I mean, Charlotte, just sticking with you on that point, like this idea that your generation in particular is 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 getting so much out of social media. I mean, this idea that people get stuck in their own... Ideas. I mean, you know, we worry at Pen America, right, about like the decline of local news. Like, right. there's just fewer and fewer places for people to go. You know, what do you think are are the ways that people in your your age range are getting their news? And like, what do you think you you all might be able to do to get them to at least diversify news sources or think about at least questioning where people are getting their information?
2: Right. I mean, it's really just about changing people's personal patterns and their personal relationship to media, right? It's about saying, as opposed to trusting everything my friends are sharing that, you know, is sourceless or may well just be totally misconstruing information, I'm gonna go read the New York Times or I'm gonna fact check right. what I'm looking at. So there is an aspect I mean there's this legislative aspect as well, which is supporting local news organizations that's also very important to improving our relationship to news. But on another level it's it's extremely personal. It's really this grassroots approach that is what t p f is talking about,
0: yeah, I mean Isabel to you um what what are the organization's uh t p f s top priorities and and how do you think you can you can get there?
3: yeah, so our main mission, I would say, is divided into three parts, so we're we're looking at information, education, and legislation, and yes, that rhymes, and I think it's amazing, but um, love it, to break that down a bit, basically. Charlotte touched on this already, but we really wanted to make sure that we were giving Gen Z the tools to be smart, active consumers of news and to change those habits and to think critically about where they were getting information. And how we do this is every week we release a news blast. And this is basically a summary of the most important headlines of the past week from a variety of different fact checkable sources, summarized um, in a way that is more accessible and clear, but also contains that complexity and nuance that a lot of social media posts lack. And so this is something that we send out um, every week, it's in your inbox, and I think it's a really great way to make sure that you're staying informed, that you are you know, making sure you're looking at a variety of different sources and that you are um, accessing credible, credible news. And then our educational side um, is really about raising awareness around these issues and fostering conversation about press freedom, about the local news crisis, about current events. And so we do this by hosting. We have biweekly workshops on Sundays and Wednesdays, um, and they're really just a a place where teens can come together. We usually have between 50 and 25 kids, um, kids a day. And we just, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. It's a really fun time to just have, have dialogue, have a debate, um, hear everyone's opinions. It's really inspiring. We have, you know, it's a really, we also explore such a wide variety of topics. Like, I think we had one on the January 6th insurrection and the role of mis and disinformation um, in triggering that. We had one on the local news crisis and what that means for a democracy. And then sometimes we just have more open-ended philosophical discussions, like what does it mean for the government to define who a journalist is? And I just think they're really interesting. And I love hearing all these people's uh, different experiences and opinions. So that's that's really fun. And lastly, I think um, for both Charlotte and myself, when we were thinking about how we were going to structure TPF, um, we really wanted to have a way to make concrete change. We didn't want to be just another wishy-washy teen activist group with a lot of social media clout, but not a lot of real um, impact. So we have created an advocacy team, which is basically a coalition of teens who are trying to make change through the courtroom um, by researching relevant legislation and advocating it, uh, advocating for it through obliterating campaigns and, you know, grassroots community engagement and, and meeting with representatives. So that is also really exciting. We've just launched a campaign around the Global Press Freedom Act and, and have a lot of other ideas in the works there.
0: I mean, that's so, such an incredible amount of work. I mean, even just like the sheer number of things that you all are working on. I mean, Charlotte, like, where do you find the time and both, both the time, but also the drive to do this?
2: Well, that is, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I think Isabel and I are both really passionate about these issues of press freedom because at its core, it's a free press is the foundation of all other social issues, right? You can only advocate for equity on a larger scale if you have a free press, if you have an educated electorate. I truly believe that a lot of the division in America that we're seeing right now would be hugely improved if we had a better relationship to media. Uh, And we need to change our habits to make sure that we do have a better relationship in media or else, you know, see the demise of America, you know, and I don't mean to sound alarmist, alarmist when I say that. um, But I think that my generation's relationship with media is really troubling. So Isabel and I both find that a big motivator um, for our involvement with this issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, you raised this idea that like, we can't really tackle these equity issues in a landscape where we don't have good information. We don't have good news. We are not sharing the same set of facts. I mean, how much Isabel did, did your experience with the Institute influence? I mean, you mentioned that obviously that's how you got started, but in terms of like the brass tacks, the things that you did in the Institute, what did you, what did you take away from it that you're now able to apply to the organization?
3: I think the Institute really gave us this skill set that basically gave us the tools to start Teens for Press Freedom, you know? I mean, before entering the Institute, I didn't know how to start an advocacy campaign. I didn't know how to make an idea into a reality, into something, you know, that has a, you know, we have a website and we have these workshops. I wouldn't have known how to do that without the really specialized skills that we learned from the Institute. We learned, you know, how to write a press release and how to manage, you know, asking for grants and funding. There are just so many times that Charlotte and I have been like, where do we go from here? What do we do next? And we look back on our notes from the Institute and we're like, oh, well, we could do this. We know how to do this. Um, We recently started a press team that releases press releases on, on, you know, current events. And I think that is just an example of us applying applying these skills that we learned in the institute really incredible um i think
2: we actually use the template from a pen session to write those press releases we oh that's great have given that to our press team to say you know this is exactly how you do it
0: that's yeah. amazing so many I mean, of our- oh. uh, no go ahead
3: I just was going to say that a lot of our workshops were inspired by lessons that we had at Penn America. We just learned a lot from the experts that, that we got the pleasure to talk to It's just really, really great. A lot of, a lot of learning.
0: Yeah. And I think for us too, having, having folks like you in our, in our Institute. Um. So finally, just last question, Um. maybe just starting with you, Charlotte, what are you reading right now?
2: Yeah. So I'm reading uh, the assault, which is a novel by Harry Newlish about, the the dutch experience in world war Two, which has been really wow. interesting and then i'm also reading um i just started this last night the ethics of ambiguity which is de beauvoir of course
0: wow yeah absolutely isbel
3: i'm reading the bell jar by sylvia plath
0: Ugh. Gosh and and then I should also mention you're also like both going to school every day. Like this is not your full-time job, right?
2: Well, it feel it can feel like a full-time job. I'll tell you that much. I'll have days where I have like six TPF meetings.
0: Oh my um, goodness. So and yet like 9 to
2: 5. Yeah. Hey,
0: and still making time to 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 read and get 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 through the book list. Well, thanks to both of you so much. Um Isabel Tribe and Charlotte Hampton are Free Speech Advocacy Institute alums and the co-founders of Teens for Press Freedom. Uh, you check out their website. We'll put it on pen.org. Thank you both so much for being here.
2: Thank you Thank so you. much for having us. This was really great.
0: And that's our episode for Friday, April thirtieth. Join us next week for the PenPod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at PenAmerica on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for PenAmerica. This is the PenPod. See you soon.